Hi there, church family. Thanks for joining us today for our uh, weekly Sunday school lesson. Um, this is Tony Richman, associate pastor to families here at FBC Keller, and I'm excited to share with you the lesson today. It's a special lesson because today is uh, February the 14th, and it's a day that a lot of folks and couples uh, celebrate things like love and marriage and relationships and uh, do some special things for one another. And so uh, today we thought we would have a special lesson um, and a really a special day at our church as a whole um, to honor marriage and to celebrate marriage. And so today we'll be taking a break from our um, study that we've been going through in Luke and we'll be specifically looking at a text in Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open to Hebrews chapter 13, we're only going to be looking at one verse specifically uh, from that chapter, and then we'll be uh, flipping to a couple other passages uh, for some supporting text and that kind of thing. But Today, the key point for the lesson is this. It is God's will for marriage to be honored. And when believers honor marriage, the gospel is publicly portrayed and the church is sanctified. And so we'll unpack that as we go through uh, the lesson today. But I thought we would start off just with a little brainstorming. Um, a few questions here. So the first question I want you to think about is if we were to go out on the streets and just poll people that we encountered, asking them, what is marriage? What would be some of the responses that we may get? What is marriage? Um, maybe another way of answering that question is, what are some depictions of marriage that we see in the media, in social media, in movies, and advertisements? How is marriage depicted in our culture? And so as you think through um, those couple questions, maybe you would come up with, you know, some people would say that marriage is overrated, Right, that uh, these days marriage um, is sort of this antiquated idea, where um, you know, you why would I want to be tied down to another person when we can live together, when we can share life together? Um, maybe some people think about marriage in terms of not being able to live up to the standard of loving another person for their whole life. So then they view marriage as um, as this danger that they're trying to avoid because they can never love one person. Um, a lot of definitions of marriage have to do with a feeling, right? Well, I'm the reason I got married is because I felt so strongly toward this other person. I had these emotions that were undeniable and I wanted to have this feeling and pursue that with this other person. And so you would get all of those things that, of course, in our culture today, um, you would get answers related to how marriage is um, it has expanded in recent 
years in our culture where no longer is it just related to one man and one woman. Now it's you can love whoever you want and be married to whoever you want. And so we would get, of course, a wide range of definitions. And we see that reflected, of course, in in that media. Um, think about how has how have you seen the culture shift in its view of marriage in your lifetime? Thinking back, uh, growing up, and through your adolescent years and college years and young adult years, how have you seen um, the culture shift in its its view of marriage? And so, um, hopefully, those questions just kind of prime our tank as we continue to think about what marriage is and how we are to honor marriage. Again, the key point is it's God's will for marriage to be honored. And I know, I know for some, Valentine's Day can evoke some negative emotions. It has negative connotations, right? Uh, some of our single friends call Valentine's Day Singles Awareness Day, right? Because all these people are celebrating their relationships and the love that they have and all of that. And of course, our single friends are over here with not much to celebrate uh, in that regard. Um, Maybe for some, they've been in hurtful relationships or their marriage is not functioning the way that they expected it to function. And so this idea of celebrating marriage or honoring marriage can evoke these negative connotations based on those experiences or those life situations. But we do want to focus today on this idea that God's will is for marriage to be honored by all people, not just people who have good marriages, not just people who have positive um, feelings and attitudes toward marriage, but for all people, even single folks, even folks who've been in difficult relationships or currently are in difficult relationships. And so we'll drill down as to why I believe the scriptures are clear that marriage should be honored by all and kind of what the basis for that honoring is. But as we continue to think through this, I want you to think about this little case study, this little illustration. So let's say you're driving home uh, this weekend and you're cruising along. And let's say you look down at your speedometer and you're going 65 and a 35. Your mind was somewhere else and you look down and you're just flying and you look up in your rearview mirror and your heart sinks down because you see those flashing blue lights and you pull over and this officer, um, he's got you. I mean, he he understands you were speeding, you understand you were speeding, but he's he, he throws the book at you. In fact, he impounds your car, he charges you with reckless driving, takes you... Um, in and before too long you're 
there about to face a judge for this action. Well, the good news is this county that you um, committed the violation in happens to be a county with the best judge. So you're thinking, okay, I'm I'm golden. This is a good judge. But just as you're entering the courthouse, you start thinking about the actions of a good judge. What are the actions of a good judge? Well, number one, he doesn't punish innocent people. But on the other hand, that good judge always punishes guilty people. He's a good and just judge. So now you are starting to get a little nervous, right? Because you are guilty. And it's hard to know, but um, let's imagine that you're standing before the judge and he says to you, this officer says you're going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. How do you plead? What would you say? Well, you're guilty and we're believers, right? We're Christians. We don't, we don't lie. So you tell the judge, judge, I'm, I'm guilty. Um, so he looks at you and says, okay, that'll be $500 or a week in jail. You're guilty as charged. And he bangs down the gavel. Well, you're in this life situation where you don't have any money. You don't have the $500 to pay. In fact, you can't pay. There, there's no way for you to come up with this money. So the bailiff comes and takes you away to, so that you can start serving your week in jail. When the judge stands up and says, wait a minute, bring, bring him back over here. Then he stands up, he takes off his robe, he walks down from behind the bench. He reaches into his coat pocket, takes out his checkbook, and writes the court a check for $500, the exact amount of your fine. Then he offers it to you. Right? What's going on here? He's just, so he must declare you guilty since you are guilty. And he demands that a penalty be paid. But this judge has determined to pay the penalty himself on your behalf. Okay, there's the scenario. Now, here's the question. What elements of this story illustrate the truth of the gospel? What elements of this story illustrate the truth of the gospel? Well, a couple of them are pretty obvious, right? The scriptures say we are all guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of that, there is a penalty that we rightfully deserve to pay because of that guilt. And yet, it is impossible for us to pay that penalty to the Lord. And so, what does God do on our behalf? He pays the penalty that we deserve by placing Christ on the cross. He, he is his life, uh, his sinless life, and his perfect atoning death on the cross is able to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, of course, with this story, like any illustration like this, we don't want to stretch it too far, but those are some of the basic elements of the gospel that we can see 
in a story like this. Now, why did I go through all that? Because if we truly understand marriage, what we are going to see is that the reason believers should consider marriage valuable and precious and honor it, it is because it is God's ordained illustration of the gospel in real life. I just made up that story, right? But marriage is intended by God to be a picture of the gospel in real life. Therefore, since all believers love the gospel and the truth of the gospel, all believers should value and honor marriage. This is the connection that we're trying to make. Okay, Hebrews chapter 13, let's look in verse 4. The writer of Hebrews clearly teaches this truth. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now, one of the dangers in taking one verse in Scripture and um, teaching it on a special emphasis Sunday is that we don't have context, right? We don't know what argument Paul is making. There have been a lot of bad Bible studies that have started by taking one verse and just teaching it, right? So let me give us a little bit of context as to how the writer of Hebrews gets to this point in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. There is a historical context that's going on with these Hebrew believers. And so it's important for us to understand who they are, why the writer would be communicating these things within their given historical context. There's also a literary context that this verse is surrounded by. That's related to words, ideas, and the structure of this um, book that build the argument and help give full meaning to the verse. So in order to fully understand the meaning of what the writer is saying here, it is essential for us to be aware of its context. So let's look for a moment at the context. The author of Hebrews reveals in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. And he's greater than Levitical priest. So in chapters 1 through 11, the author argues that all of the ceremonies all the sacrifices and the offices of the Old Testament were foreshadowing the person and work of Christ as their ultimate fulfillment. So these Hebrew believers need to understand that all of these things that are outlined in the Old Testament law had a purpose. And what was their purpose? Their purpose was ultimately to point to Jesus and the office he would hold and the sacrifice that he would give. So it's important to understand that this author is helping them make those connections. Well, then in chapter 12, the author shifts to personal 
application. We're familiar with these opening verses of chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the remainder of the book, chapters 12 and 13, flesh out for the audience of believers what it looks like to run the race that is before us, what it looks like to live a life that is devoted to Christ, which is the point of all of these Old Testament laws and ceremonies and sacrifices and offices. So the original audience for the book of Hebrews is undoubtedly Jewish Christians, believers who came from this Jewish heritage and culture and the law. Therefore, it's important for us to consider what the truths found within this book would have been directed toward in the context of these first century Jewish Christians. So in one sense, these Jewish believers had to undertake the difficult task of considering to what degree their Jewish heritage and theology remained intact and to what degree Jesus was the fulfillment of that heritage and theology. So for this reason, the author of Hebrews exhorts the listener to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that is to say that their sole focus, this is important, their sole focus should be directed toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, let's bring this back to our text today, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where it states, let marriage be held in honor by all. In chapter 13, Christians are told how to live in light of Jesus as the better Savior, how their life should reflect that their sole focus is toward the person and work of Christ. So in chapter 13, verse 1, we're given a things, a list of things that uh, they're to love and things they're not to love. In verse 1, it says, let brotherly love continue. In verse 2, it says they are to show hospitality. In verse 3, it says they are to remember those who are in prison and are who, who are mistreated. In verse 5, it says they are to not love money. So to boil these things down is to say Christians are to love other Christians. They're to love strangers and guests. They are to show special love to believers who are in prison for the sake of Christ. They're supposed to love marriage by honoring it. And they are to resist the temptation to love money. Why? Why are they to do those things? Because their sole focus is on Christ. And each one of these things are illustrations, are pictures 
of the love that Christ has for his church. And this is an enormously helpful word for us in our materialistic and secularized culture. As Christians living in America these days, our situation is not very different from those first century Jewish believers. Our culture loves money and doesn't love marriage. Just the opposite of what the writer is trying to tell us here in Hebrews chapter 13. And if we're not careful intentional and intentional about directing our passions towards things that are God-honoring and biblically directed, we will fall away from running our race in a faithful way. Uh, we need times of intentional worldview evaluation. We need to ask ourselves the question, am I loving and valuing the things that God says I should love and value? Or have I fallen into the trap of loving the things that our culture lure, lures me into valuing? We need to ensure that we have our soul focus set on Jesus. We need to think from our Bible, which means we need to be out of sync with the world and in sync with the word. The world values money. The world values materially. The world values self. The world values stuff. And one way we're exhorted to think differently is in relation to our belief and valuation about marriage. For the foreseeable future, we're going to live in a culture that does not value and honor marriage. Therefore, we must ensure that we do not get our attitudes and practices related to marriage from the culture, but from the world. We, we have to understand foundationally that marriage is a God-ordained institution. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 2, verses 24. Marriage um, is God's idea. He says, remember this is right after God has created Adam and then um, created Eve from his rib. In verse 24 of chapter 2, it says this, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, a helpful statement on this topic was given by a college professor when he said, Worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness look odd. Let me say that again. Worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness look odd. We can certainly see this happening as we journey through our life in a secular culture. The battle that we face in the issue of marriage is that if we believe in marriage as God defines it, we are looked upon as bigots, as hateful, as narrow-minded as unloving. And the day is coming when if we have a biblical view of marriage, we are going to be accused of for hate speech. But put simply and clearly, God invented marriage. Therefore, marriage is pre-political. 
No government invented marriage. Marriage, in fact, is pre-existent to government. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus clearly teaches that God invented marriage when he points back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and quotes it, saying, A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So even Jesus taught this important truth that God invented marriage, and because it is pre-political, no government has the right or authority to define it or to try to redefine it. The only definition for marriage is God's definition, and here it is. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. That's what marriage is, and that's what marriage will always be. Now let's think about the purpose of marriage. In order for believers to consider marriage valuable and precious, that is to honor marriage, we must understand the primary purpose of marriage. This is huge because even in context within our culture where marriage is somewhat valued and upheld, the underlying motivations for its value are man-centered. So the importance of marriage in those contexts has to do with a person's happiness or a person's fulfillment being found in another person. In doing premarital counseling, I often ask a couple, why do you want to get married? And sometimes I hear this man-centered approach with the responses like this. I can't imagine living without this person. This person makes me so happy and fulfilled. Once again, those are man-centered approaches to marriage. Um... For others, the marriage is tied to a deep emotion or feeling that they possess. When I'm with this person, I feel so happy and I feel so um, motivated to love and and, and to, to serve. But for Christians, the purpose of marriage is much higher and more valuable than a feeling of fulfillment or temporary happiness. Biblically, Marriage is intentionally used as a metaphor for God's unbreakable covenant with his people. The reason marriage is so important is because its purpose lies in God's unbreakable covenant with his people. Think of Old Testament passages like Song of Solomon and Hosea where marriage is used specifically by God to illustrate the relationship that he has with his people. Think about the book of Revelation where Jesus is depicted as the groom who is coming for his bride and where they will share together in a wedding feast. But let's think specifically about Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 is a passage that Christians often look to to receive direction on God's intentions for roles within marriage. Let me read that passage for us. This is Ephesians 5 starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife 
as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hateth his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So this passage clearly lays out a pattern for marital roles that calls husbands to sacrificial love and care for their wives and wives to submission to their husbands. And these truths are certainly important for us to consider in order to truly honor God within our marriages. However, Paul is not primarily writing this section to inform believers of their roles within marriage. Did you you hear that? Paul is not primarily writing this section to inform believers of the roles within marriage, even though it includes that. He writes this section to give us the purpose of marriage. Look in verse 32 again. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is clearly stating that the purpose of marriage and these roles within marriage is to be a living portrayal of the gospel, of the union that Christ has with his church. And what an incredible and valuable truth that message of the gospel is. Let's think about the gospel. This is the hope of nations. This is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. This is the, the reason that we're to honor marriage is because its primary purpose is to help reveal God's redemptive plan for the world, his covenantal relationship with his people. And it is the truth that the Son of God left his father to cleave to his bride by purchasing her with his redeeming sacrifice at the cross. That is the purpose of marriage, to help reveal this incredible truth of the gospel. This is the core teaching of the Christian faith. We are on a mission to proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth. And God has ordained human marriage to be a living picture of this proclamation. Therefore, all Christians should consider the lifelong union of one man and one woman to be precious. 
because it is the portrayal of the message of the gospel. Back to Hebrews chapter 13. Let marriage be held in honor by all. The question remains, who should consider marriage precious or valuable or honorable? The answer from the author of Hebrews is all. Now, biblical scholars are somewhat divided over the meaning of all in this passage. Some consider this all to be the author's audience, Jewish Christians or just Christians that would direct this meaning to believers while others consider that this all could even be applied for non-believers. But in either case, all believers are certainly included. So, of course, one would think people who are married should value marriage. But as we mentioned, what about those who are single? What about those who are widowed or who have been hurt by experiences in the past? What about those who are single now but desire to be married in the future? The call of Scripture is for believers to honor marriage. All believers. Since marriage is ultimately about the gospel message, the valuation of marriage is not tied to personal life situation. Every disciple of Christ is called to consider marriage precious since nothing is more precious to believers than the truth of the gospel. Marriage is then to be honored in each life. Let's think about the application of this then. What is the definition of marriage? How does an accurate definition of marriage direct the course of one's thinking and acting Toward marriage. I would encourage you to do this. At some point this week, sit down. If you are married, maybe you sit down with your spouse and you think about, maybe you even write out what you believe to be a biblically accurate definition of marriage. Think about what passages of scripture you would utilize to help develop this definition. It's important that we define marriage God's way. But then I want to ask this question in application. How is marriage tied to the gospel? If you were asked to give a defense for this statement, how would you do so? Biblical marriage is to be a portrayal of the gospel. In what way is it an accurate portrayal? Are there times when it could be an inaccurate portrayal of the gospel? How is marriage tied to the gospel? And then think about this. What life situations have you experienced that may make it difficult for you to truly honor marriage? And reflecting on your life, what situations skew the thought of marriage in your mind? What truths could be utilized in your thought life to direct your mind more toward a God-focused view of marriage rather than a man-centered view? What course of action should be taken in your life to truly honor marriage? Uh, Maybe for some of us, we need to take time to repent and to refocus because we haven't thought of marriage in God's way on God's terms. Maybe you need to ask the Lord in prayer to remove a sense of bitterness or resentment 
from your life. Maybe you've got experiences. Maybe you're a, a married um, person and you have this bitterness toward marriage because you look at other marriages around you and you want to have a marriage like that marriage, but you don't. And so because of that, you have this sense of bitterness or resentment toward marriage. Um, maybe you're a single person and you desire deeply to get married at some point, but those circumstances and God's sovereignty haven't played themselves out in your life at this point. And so because of that, there's this bitterness or resentment that you have. Maybe you need to take a moment in prayer and ask God to heal that in your life so that you could truly honor marriage. Um, then what attitudes of your heart need to change so that your own marriage more closely resembles the truth of the gospel. If you are married, how um, is your marriage doing at portraying these truths of the gospel? What actions or realities illustrate that there needs to be a change in your marriage in order to accurately depict the truth of the gospel? And then lastly, what does a God-centered approach to marriage mean for purity, both inside and outside of marriage? What is the goal of purity as it relates to sexual intimacy? And how does honoring marriage connect with purity in your context, whether you're married or you're not? These are a few questions of practical application. Here's the point. It's God's will for marriage to be honored by all. And when believers honor marriage, the gospel is publicly portrayed and the church is sanctified. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us marriage because in it, we have a deeper understanding. We have a picture of of the gospel truth. And Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that we can look at Christian marriage and not see two people who love one another and are fulfilled by one another and serve one another and are just such great married people. But that in Christian marriage that truly follows your model we see Christ and his church. We see sacrifice. We see love in, in not a, simply an emotional way, but an active way. And we see the hope for the nations that Jesus left his father and became a man so that he could lay his life down for his bride, us, the church, those who are loved by God. And because of that, we share this intimate relationship with a sovereign God. 
the most intimate relationship we could imagine as people, a married couple. We have that with God. And so, Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for giving us this understanding of what our relationship with you is like through Christ and what he has done as our groom. And Lord, we pray that because of those truths, we would value marriage. We would honor marriage. No matter our life situation, no matter if we have a marriage that is uh, functioning well and is going good, or we maybe have a marriage that struggles in some ways, or maybe we're a single person, or maybe we're a person who's been impacted by divorce, or we're a widow, or whatever our life situation is, oh, each of us can value marriage because as believers, we value so highly this gospel truth. Thank you for that reminder today. Anytime we see Christian marriage, would you remind us of the gospel? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.